Welcome to the New Books Network. Few people would describe themselves as anti-Semites, and yet many Jews living in Europe and the US and elsewhere believe they encounter anti-Semitism quite frequently. So what accounts for such different perceptions? Well, I'm discussing that and related matters today with Dave Rich, author of Everyday Hate, How Anti-Semitism is Built into Our World and How You Can Change It. So welcome to you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, do, you, do you see that difference in perception uh, in the way I described it? I do, and I think what you're touching on is the fact that, generally speaking, uh, anti-Semitism is something that is very much frowned upon. Even people who, who hold anti-Semitic views don't like to admit to it, even to admit it to themselves, to be honest. Opinion polling shows us there are very few people, relatively speaking, who will own up to feeling hostile towards Jewish people. And yet, anti-Semitic attitudes, negative stereotypes and myths and ideas about Jewish people, you encounter them in all parts of society. This difference between the relative lack of anti-Semitic people and the relative frequency of anti-Semitic attitudes is really the key to understanding how anti-Semitism has survived for so long and how it can be so prevalent. We'll be talking about its history in a moment. But first of all, I think it would help to... I mean, a lot of this comes down to the definition of anti-Semitism, doesn't it, which is controversial. So let's run through what is the probably grossest anti-Semitic... I'm never quite sure what trope means, but I think anti-Semitic trope, which is blood libel, right, at the top end of the scale. The idea... Well, can you talk talk through the history of that idea of blood libel and Jews? I think it's important to understand when you're talking about definitions of anti-Semitism. As you say, there's all sorts of arguments about official definitions, and you can get really bogged down in the wording and so on. But as a kind of kind of broad idea of what anti-Semitism is, it's hostility, prejudice, or hatred towards Jewish people, or to put it in more understandable terms. It's just the idea that Jews are always up to something. It's this kind of conspiracy notion that you can never really trust Jews. They're a bit too rich, a bit too powerful. They're always sticking together and to manipulate things to their own advantage. Now, the blood libel that you mentioned, which is one of the most grotesque and bizarre anti-Jewish myths uh, that exist, but has been around for centuries, is an idea that emerged in the Middle Ages, actually for the very first time in Norwich in 1144, that Jewish people would kidnap Christian children and kill them in a kind of religious ritual, so the allegation went, was meant to be a a, a mock reenactment of the crucifixion. And this goes way back to the idea that emerged in the early Christian Gospels that the Jews at the time of Jesus Christ were responsible for Jesus's death, that they wanted the Romans to crucify him. And uh, in the Gospels, Pontius Pilate is quoted as supposedly saying, you know, his blood is on you and on your children, i.e. forever. And so the idea arose in the Middle Ages that Jews would would kind of reenact the crucifixion on Christian children. And this then became even more macabre with the idea that not only would they kill these children, they would drain their blood while they were still alive and either drink their blood or use it to for religious purposes. I mean, this sounds so ridiculous, no one would ever believe it, but people really did. And in lots of places around England, and then it spread across medieval Europe, Jews en masse 
would be tortured into confessing to these supposed crimes. They would be put on trial. One of the most famous examples was in Lincoln in 1255, where a, a young boy called Hugh was, was found dead. Around 90 local Jews were put on trial, 18 or 19 of whom were executed for it. I should just break in and explain, when you talk about Norwich and Lincoln, these are towns in southern England. Uh, so you're saying you know, this goes right back to then. And it's right to say, isn't it, that the, you know, the, the, the well, I guess the association of Jews and blood and some sort of crime or grim events continues in different forms after that. It happens until today. The themes that come out of this, that, that Jews are particularly cruel, particularly bloodthirsty, that they kill children and so on, became completely mainstream beliefs about Jewish people. None of these allegations were ever true. Any of the confessions were, were, were forced confessions under torture. In a lot of the blood libel allegations, there was never even a dead child to hang it on. But people believe them. Whole Jewish communities were, were killed and so on as a result. Now, you can find blood libel stories in Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, you know, the Merchant of Venice with the idea of, of that, that Shylock wanted a, a pound of flesh and, and couldn't have his Christian blood plays on these themes. And it comes through all the way into the present day in some of the more kind of lurid and fantastical allegations thrown at, at the state of Israel and the Israeli army in terms of organ harvesting and so on. So these themes, they really carry through to the present day. Now then, if we say that's at the top end of the seriousness of anti-Semitic tropes, at the, at the other end, what, where, what would you say? I mean, it goes through, you've mentioned some of them, the idea of meanness, fondness of money, conspiracies. Is that right? Is that the sort of where you get down to at the, at the you know, I'm not saying it's, it's insignificant, but at the less serious end? One of the things about anti-Semitism you always have to remember is that sometimes it's just completely ridiculous and you have to laugh at it. So it all comes back to this this idea of conspiracy, that whenever there's anything bad going on in the world, there'll always be some Jews behind it, either pulling the strings or trying to benefit from it, either financially or politically. And this is an incredibly dangerous idea that has fueled some of the most criminal political movements in our history. I mean, it was at the core of Nazi anti-Semitism. It happens in such ridiculous circumstances that you just have to laugh. So, you know, in the United States, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's now a Republican congresswoman, but before she was elected, she came up with this whole theory that uh, wildfires in California were caused by lasers in space that were funded by the Rothschilds. Now, the Rothschilds is, a, is, is an old Jewish bank that in the 19th century was quite important and nowadays is, is pretty small in financial terms. And so she'd come up with this weird idea that rather than these wildfires being caused by, you know, hikers dropping their cigarette butts and not putting them out properly, it was the Rothschilds from space and everyone made fun of her because sometimes you just have to laugh at it. Even when you acknowledge the ridiculousness of some of the things that anti-Semites believe, you should never lose touch with the idea that these very same ideas can be extremely dangerous if they're put to work by sinister forces. Well, I mean, that, that idea was actually part of the QAnon canon of belief, wasn't it? I mean, so it was, it was actually quite widely held. In the QAnon movement, it doesn't always explicitly say these people are Jewish, and, and a lot of them aren't. But it's the same idea. It comes from this blood libel idea, and then it just filters through into what is becoming quite a mainstream belief. Okay, so that helps us understand some of these ideas. Then if you if you go to the history of it, you've said it goes, I think you said 1140. But basically, in the let, let's start in Europe, and then we'll deal with the US. I mean, in Europe, it goes back to around those times. The thing about anti-Semitism is, we look at, at examples of it in the present day, 
And you can look at people talking about Jews and money and Jews and power. And, you know, you've, you've got uh, Joe Rogan on his podcast saying, you know, what's the big deal saying Jews love money? And you've got Kanye West coming out with all his theories about all the terrible things Jews, he, he claims Jewish people are doing in America. These things are happening now, but they wouldn't happen in the way they were if it wasn't for the way anti-Semitism was, you know, literally eight, nine hundred years ago. The formative period, if you like, for these ideas about Jewish people came in really the early, uh, the, the, the centuries when the early Christian church was developing in the centuries following Jesus's death, where you started to get these discourses about Jews and about Judaism coming from people who were trying to break away from Judaism, because of course, Jesus and, and, and his followers at that time were Jewish. And then this movement developed that broke away from them. And so this very negative, hostile set of ideas about Jews developed from people who were, you know, were trying to distance themselves from it and differentiate themselves. But then it's really in the Middle Ages where these get kind of supercharged, kind of millennial fever that around the, 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 the turn of the, the millennium. You've got the Crusades, got the, these huge armies marching off to Jerusalem to reclaim it for Christianity and to kill the infidel. And in a lot of places, the thinking was, well, why wait till we get to Jerusalem to kill the infidel when we've got Jews right here and Jews were slaughtered in Germany in huge numbers, but in England in smaller numbers as well by, by crusaders before they set off or while they were on their journey. And this general idea developed that the Jews were kind of a satanic presence in medieval Europe that, that was kind of toxic and a threat to, 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 to the moral and spiritual well-being of, of the nation and that whatever is good about society, whatever the, the kind of moral values that we want to hold up as the way to be, Jews got held up as the opposite of that, as the example of how not to be. None of it really was about real Jewish people and how real Jewish people behave. And this is the thing to remember about anti-Semitism is that it's really got nothing to do with how Jewish people actually are. It says much more about the societies themselves where anti-Semitism takes hold. So it starts back then and then it's basically a consistent element of European society, culture, yeah, it's through every century and finds its climax in, in the Holocaust. It tends to come to the fore at times of extreme stress in society. That, that brings about a lot of insecurity and anxiety across society. And when people look for someone to blame, Jews have always been an easy uh, and an available scapegoat, whether that's economic stresses or whether it's plagues. I mean, during the Black Death, Jews were accused of poisoning wells and spreading the plague. And then during the COVID-19, again, you know, conspiracy theories emerged that Jews had either invented the virus or invented the vaccine that was supposedly going to poison us all. So these things kind of replay. In the 19th century in Europe, you start to get a, a kind of very modern, secular, scientific version of anti-Semitism that takes all these old themes from the Middle Ages, but puts a modern veneer on them. Into the 20th century, you have these huge dislocations of, of the First World War, massive global economic crashes. You have huge industrial change. Conspiracy theories become popular as a way of explaining them. And a lot of these conspiracy theories revolve around Jews. Right. And so it's interesting, you, you, you basically, I was going to ask you about why it ebbs and flows. And you think it's down to really people being anxious, is it? And then needing to scapegoat someone, basically. In the Middle Ages, Jews were kind of forced into the role of moneylenders and bankers. 
across Europe because Christians were not supposed to lend money at interest. Of course, a lot of them still did, but a lot of prominent Jewish moneylenders and bankers were Jewish. And then through the, the, the kind of modern period as sort of early modern capitalism developed, a lot of the, the, the kind of key finances in a lot of places were Jewish. If people want to get out of their debts, they can always just expel the, Jew, the Jews who they owe the debts to and cancel all the debts which can't necessarily done, be done with other people. So there was always a, a vulnerability to power built into even the most integrated Jewish communities. You've described what's happened in Europe. Talk us through the US and other parts of the world. I mean, it, it, yeah, I think you're basically saying Europe's the crucible of this, but how widespread a phenomenon is it and has it been over history? Christian thinking has always given a, a particular place one way or another to Jews within its kind of vision of, of, of the universe and of the moral and spiritual universe. You also have the development of Islamic thinking about Jews because there were large Jewish communities in Muslim-majority countries across North Africa, across the Middle East, and, and, and so on. And the Jewish experience there was very different. It also wasn't one of equality, but it also wasn't one that had the extremes of murderous persecution as frequently as medieval Christian Europe did. We live in a globalized world. Anti-Semitism got exported into Muslim-majority countries through colonial conquest in, in the 18th and 19th centuries and got mixed in with Islamic traditions about Jews, which were more respectful. And then you look in, in other parts of the world. This is something that's about the monotheistic faiths. It really is very much about about countries and societies that were built by Jewish, Christian or Islamic thinking and, and ideas. And beyond that, in, for example, you know, in, in, in China, in the Far East and so on, you, you have other traditions. Jews just didn't matter as much in how these civilizations viewed the world and their place in it. And therefore, anti-Semitism didn't really have the same kind of roots as it does in both Europe and European-based societies, in, in China, in the Far East, and so on. There is a whole school of publishing that basically t tells people, if you want to do really well in business, learn from the Jews. You know, read the Talmud, which is a, an ancient Jewish religious text, and this will tell you how to do well in business because the Jews are great in business. It's not meant to be a negative, but it plays on exactly the same stereotypes that Jews have this kind of weird, unique w relationship with money and trading and, and finance and so on that can, can play out either way. So you get these kind of versions of parts of European anti-Semitism being picked up and, 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 and taking different forms in non-monotheistic countries. Well, I mean, to, to, I mean, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but would, would it be right to say that in India there have never been pogroms? There haven't been Jewish communities in the way there were in Europe. You know, there, there, there were historically Jewish communities in, in India which came out of the, the kind of migration of, of especially Portuguese and Spanish Jews who set up trading networks in, in the Far East, um, especially after Jews were expelled from Spain and Portugal at the end of the 15th century. But there weren't the same kind of um, large Jewish communities, and there wasn't the same hostile thinking about Jews as this kind of satanic presence in India in the way that you had this in medieval Europe. So you didn't get the same pogroms and persecutions and so on, other than in those parts of, of these lands that were 
also part of, of European empires run by countries that were hostile to Jews at home. Now, then I want to ask you about how unique the Jewish experience is. I remember like, the first program I ever made for the BBC World Service was on, I was asked to make a series on gypsies, you know, generally, and then discovered, which I had been unaware of, that the gypsies suffered very badly in the Holocaust. And it struck me there were parallels because, you know, the, the, this was a community that had moved and travelled around the world and was always, you know, slightly separate from mainstream society. So do you think that is a legitimate comparison? What? How do you see that? You can look at different types of, of racism and different types of prejudice and definitely see things that, that are similar and that overlap and that connect with each other. So, for example, as you say, during the Holocaust, the Nazis, as well as uh, trying to exterminate the entirety of European Jewry, also uh, murdered hundreds of thousands of uh, Roma gypsy people in, in what was also a genocide. But there is a difference and there is something that is specific and unique to anti-Semitism and that is this belief that Jews are all powerful. So if you take Nazi kind of racial thinking as our, as our you know, as the, the example of the most extreme case of this, the Nazis viewed Jews and, and a whole host of other people as racially inferior, as subhuman and worthless lives. And killed millions as a result of that. But it was only the Jews who they believed were also part of a global conspiracy that ran the, the banks and the media that controlled politicians. You know, they thought Jews were the true power behind the United States, the Soviet Union and the British Empire. They didn't believe that about anyone else. And so this is why the, the Nazis, as well as murdering millions of Jews in the territories that they they conquered in Eastern Europe, in Poland, in what is now Belarus and Ukraine, the Soviet, and what was the Soviet Union. The Nazis also put a huge amount of effort into getting their hands on huge numbers of Jews from all other parts of Europe and, sh and shipping them in on trains into Eastern Europe to then kill them there, to kill every Jewish person in, in, in Britain and Ireland and in Portugal, in parts of Europe, they had, they that were not under German control. A total of eleven million Jews were on their their kind of wish list because of this conspiracy theory, because of this idea that they thought they were in a cosmic struggle with survive for survival with international jury, as they put it. And that is something that it, not just for for Nazism, but for anti-Semitism in general. That conspiracy element is something that makes anti-Semitism different from most other forms of prejudice. Yeah, because there, there are other genocides. I mean, Cambodia, Rwanda, yeah, huge numbers of people lost their lives. But I guess you would say that that distinction holds true there too. The Holocaust, even within genocides, even within, you know, the, the, the shameful history of humanity's most evil crimes, it's still unique because of this, this element of a desire to eradicate every Jew from the face of the earth. It wasn't territorially limited. It wasn't something that um, emerged from an actual conflict between Germans and Jews. There was no conflict. It was a fantasy on the part of the Nazis. It didn't come out of a struggle for territory or economic domination or anything like that. It was based entirely on a fantasy. And it was implemented through industrial means on an unimaginable scale by what was at that time, you know, from one of Europe's most 
advanced and developed nations. And I think all of that makes the Holocaust unique, even compared to other genocides. I, I want to discuss what's happening now, you know, and why these issues are to the fore at the moment. But just before we do that, since we're making these comparisons with other things that have happened in history, can I just ask you to, to address you know, the issue of Islamophobia and the feeling amongst many Muslims in the West that they are prejudiced against, you know, people are prejudiced against them, they suffer discrimination, and that uh, there is, you know, an idea of Islamophobia in mainstream society. What would, you know, how do you draw distinctions there? Opinion polling shows, for example, that amongst the, the British population as a whole, there is significantly more anti-Muslim prejudice than there is anti-Semitism. Every type of prejudice has its particular features um, and kind of works in, in different ways. So we always have to be careful, I think, of lumping them all in together and assume they all operate in the same way. But of course, acknowledging the existence of one doesn't mean we have to downplay the existence of the other. And sometimes they do come as part of a package. What's happening now? I mean, I, I, I read, uh, I think, an article you wrote saying there, there are an increasing number of anti-Semitic incidents or events in the UK at the moment. I, I would, is that probably true? Is it for Europe and, and definitely the US? This is true. The, the statistics show us that if you compare where we are now to where we were five or ten years ago, uh, hate crimes against Jewish people in Britain are a higher level than they used to be. And when you have a year like 2021 or 2014 where Israel is at war, then you get much bigger spikes and record levels of anti-Semitic hate crimes. But what we've also seen in the last decade is a rash of lethal terrorist attacks against Jewish communities around the world. We've seen shootings at synagogues in uh, Pittsburgh and in San Diego and in Germany. We've seen attacks on Jewish schools and supermarket in France, the Jewish Museum in Belgium, synagogue in Denmark, and many other plots foiled by police in lots of different countries as well. Just uh, this week that I'm speaking to you, the Greek authorities announced that they had prevented uh, an attack on a Jewish community building in Athens. And these attacks come from people with different ideological backgrounds, some are neo-Nazis, some are jihadists, some are state-sponsored mainly by Iran. You put it together as a picture and what you get is, is rising feelings of insecurity in Jewish communities around the world. And it's a feeling based on the evidence that hate crimes and, and terrorism towards Jewish people is, is getting worse. And I mean, another aspect of this is that it tends to be amongst the young, right? Which is uh, somewhat depressing that it, it, it's, it's the younger generations are more anti-Semitic than, than the older generations. One of the most alarming and shocking aspects of this is that uh, there are several opinion polls now that show us that younger people are much more likely than older people to believe conspiracy theories about Jewish people and to buy into all these negative stereotypes. So just to quote one example... Uh, according to a, a poll from last year, 34% of 18 to 24-year-olds in Britain believe that Jews have an unhealthy control of the global banking system. I mean, that's, that's more than one in three. If you're under the age of 34, you're more likely to believe this stuff than if you're over the age of 45. And if you use social media apps as your main source of news and information, then you're even more likely 
to believe these conspiracy theories, uh, not just about Jews and the banks, but about Jews controlling politicians and Jew, all sorts of, of negative ideas. Now, by most measures, younger people are less racist than older people, more at ease with diversity and with people from different backgrounds and so on. And yet, when it comes to anti-Semitism in Jewish people, the opposite seems to be the case. Now, we're only talking about a minority of young people, and I, I've stressed this on, you know, whatever age and, and background people are, most people are not anti-Semitic. But the trend lines are pointing in a worrying direction. I think the reason for this is the difference between a prejudice and a conspiracy theory. Most racism works as kind of straightforward prejudice, and younger people are less likely to be prejudiced in that way. But anti-Semitism works as conspiracy theories do. And younger people are more likely to believe conspiracy theories about everything, whether that's about Jewish people, about COVID and vaccines, about the 9-11 terrorist attacks, or about, you know, the weather, about everything. Yeah, I think there's something else going on there, isn't it? It's, it's, I mean, I can see that distinction sort of works. But isn't there a parallel between, you know, the, the middle-aged white males who are considered too powerful in society and you know too many privileges and yeah lots of advantages which they've not been aware of and are being combated in the workplace and so on and the jewish community who's seen as you know not suffering like other minorities and so is, is it got something to do with that 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 uh that there's a perception that jews are not the same as other minorities because you know you, you made the, you've made the important distinction that young people generally speaking are a very sort of tolerant of minorities, right? I think that's right. If you believe that, generally speaking, democracy is a sham and real power is held by a, a, a wealthy elite, uh, you know, relatively few people, then it's not much of a jump to believe that that wealthy elite who hold power is the Jews. And if you're getting your information on social media, then at some point or other, so your social media apps will tell you it's the Jews because there's so much of that content out there. And I think you're right that, that the the ability to spot this as as, as anti-Semitism, the resistance to it, is perhaps not there in the way that it might be um, for other minorities because um, a lot of anti-racist thinking kind of misses out anti-Semitism and it, and it misses out Jews as a vulnerable, targeted minority. And this is because of perceptions that Jewish people are, you know, on the whole, generally speaking, pretty well integrated, pretty well off, pretty powerful, that they're white, that they don't really experience racism in this way. And this is partly a reflection of the fact that um, ideas of racism have shifted to revolve around colour, whereas a hundred years ago, um, you know, people thought in much more racialized terms about different communities of white people, such as Jews or Irish and so on. You know, you look at a country like Britain, and Jewish community is, on the whole, relatively well in, uh, educated and more, you know, more prosperous than the average. Although there are still large pockets of poverty, that then plays into these stereotypes that you know Jews are rich, Jews are powerful, they don't have any problems, and if if they do get attacked every now and again, it's not real racism because they're not really a race. Yeah, I can see what you're saying there, and the, the distinction between. Uh, the Jewish community and overprivileged middle-aged white males is that, you know, the overprivileged middle-aged white males don't get attacked, actually, and they don't get shouted out on the street. Exactly right. And most Jewish people, if you speak to them, will have stories to tell you about things that 
anti-Semitic abuse shouted at them or at their kids on their way to or from school or more likely anti-Semitic comments that have been said to them by people who don't realize they're Jewish or that they've overheard is really very common. And as a Jewish people, as a Jewish person, you kind of learn to live with it, but you know it's there and you know it will happen every now and again. Now your average middle-aged white man who's, you know, you know, has has an easy life as in the way you describe it, doesn't have to deal with this, doesn't have to think about this, but it's a kind of prejudice that that is invisible to a lot of people. A lot of people would just miss it or they'll hear it and they won't understand it and won't recognize it for what it is. Now, I was quite interested you just uh, said that, um, I think it's probably in relation to the UK, that many in the Jewish community are, you know, not in a great, you know, they're not in a bad place compared to many other minorities. But that does get into a very tricky area, and I want you to talk us through it, which is to what extent it is okay to say things like that. And preparing for this interview, I read some remarks I was quite surprised by. So Liz Truss, who was Prime Minister briefly here in the UK, Jewish values are conservative values. So that's quite a generalisation, right? Do you, have any tr- do you have any problem with that? This goes back to what I was saying earlier, that for centuries, really, in the development in Europe and our society's sense of itself, Jews have quite often been given a, a place of importance that other minorities haven't really been given, certainly until relatively recently. And again, you can go back centuries, and the way a society treated its Jews was seen as an indicator of the type of society it was. Now, at times, a good society kept them down because they were dangerous. And at other times, societies have, have celebrated and protected their Jewish community and taken that as an indicator of, you know, we are a good progressive society. Now, I know which one I prefer, you might argue. No one would see Jews as special either way and just be allowed to, to get on with things. But there is definitely a type of politics in Europe now, especially since the Holocaust, that recognises that a society that persecutes its Jews is not a healthy society, that anti-Semitism is an indicator of much deeper problems, and ultimately it's dangerous for everybody to allow it to take hold. When political leaders, whether it's Liz Truss or anybody else, put a warm embrace around their Jewish community, um, it's in that context, I think. And and it's something that's very common. You know, French leaders in, in, in recent years, because there's, you know, there's been a huge problem of, of anti-Semitism in France in the last 20 years or so, and successive French presidents, French presidents and prime ministers will say things like, France is not France without its Jews. Now, historically, that's an absurd idea because for centuries, France had no Jews in it because it expelled them all in um, at the end of the... Uh, 14th century um and it was still france but in the modern world i I think we have to take that as a positive that that politicians are alive to anti-semitism and want to make statements that basically speak up in 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 support of jewish communities rishi sunak the current british prime minister said this recently despite only ever making up a small proportion of the population British Jews shine in almost every field. And I actually, but while I ask you that, let me also tell you another thing which I just read preparing for this, that a, a which you, you probably came across this case, but a, a Southampton 
professor of engineering was fired when he said uh, Jewish people are, are no, it wasn't even qualified. Jewish people are the cleverest in the world. Uh, and he said Germans in the same conversation are good at engineering. You get these big generalizations. Do you think of them as anti-Semitic? You, you quote from the prime minister there. Uh, for, to me, fits in with a broader kind of politics of embracing diversity where people look for examples of different minorities contributing to wider society in a really positive way. You know, in terms of just the reality of how politics works, I understand why that happens. And frankly, people in the Jewish community take great pride over Jewish people doing well in different sectors. Now, I see that as very different from the second example that you quote, where someone makes a, you know, a blanket statement that could apply to all Jews saying all Jews are X or all Jews are Y. And that's where, you know, some people mean these in a positive way, but it still plays on the same kind of stereotypes. You know, there was a case some years ago where Dave Whelan, who was the chairman of Wigan Football Club, got in trouble for saying, you know, Jews love chasing money. And when people pulled him up on it and said that's anti-Semitic, he said, "What do you mean? Everyone loves chasing money." Now he's a really re he's a really wealthy, successful businessman, and he probably meant it as a compliment, but it's the same stereotype that gets used in a negative way. Now I see that as very different from saying, "You know what? When we look around Britain today, and we look in every sphere, whether it's cultural, economic, political, sporting, whatever." You can see Jewish people who've made a really important contribution to to, to the, the positive aspects of the way our country is now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm interested you say that because I'd have thought that was getting into as somebody who you know wouldn't want to be called anti-Semitic. I would be nervous of saying that of of saying, yeah, the British Jews have made a big contribution to the arts and business and whatever, because it seems to be getting into that area of generalisation, which could be offensive. I think if you take it a step further and say, this proves that all Jewish people are genetically predisposed to X or Y, then you're in dodgy territory. But if you're in, in the place like that quote you said, where you're just looking at the contribution people make, a lot of people in the Jewish community will actually flip it the other way and be very offended if the fact that someone who's done great things is Jewish isn't acknowledged. You know, there are there are lots of people, lots of things in our in our society in, 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 that have contributed to making Britain the country it is today, where Jewish people have contributed, and the Jewish community tends to take pride in that and want it acknowledged. That's different from then assuming these stereotypes about everybody. Yeah, it was interesting when you raised genetics. I just had another interview which we've put out in this series on precisely that topic, not in relation to uh, the Jewish community, but in relation to all communities, and to what extent genes do determine capacities of different groups. And it's a highly, highly controversial area, and very difficult to, to, to sort of navigate through, because as soon as you start placing emphasis on genes, you get yourself into big trouble. Absolutely, you do. And especially if you're looking at something like the Jewish people, which has been so uh, geographically dispersed, over thousands of years across such huge swathes of the world in, in different countries and you've had big population movements of Jewish people normally because you know fleeing persecution in one place and moving to another the idea of trying to explain you know there's a single Jewish way of being based on either genetics or culture or other other, other kind of factors 
I think is very slippery and it does lead you into potentially very dangerous territory. We know we have to get on to another difficult area, which is Israel and what difference that's made to the debate and, you know, what, uh, you know, how that has affected perceptions of Jews around the world and whether, you know, this this big issue, whether anti-Zionism is the same as anti-Semitism. So why don't you just sort of give us your basic position on, on those issues? Creation of Israel, in a way, transformed the, the nature of the Jewish world. You know, for centuries, Jews were citizens of other countries where they, they didn't hold sovereign power. They were at the whim of other, other governments and other kind of movements and cultures. Anti-Semites would accuse Jews of having this kind of inordinate power and using it to do terrible things like killing children and so on. And now you've got Israel, which is a sovereign power. It's the largest Jewish community in the world today. More Jews live in Israel than anywhere else. It has a, a modern, powerful army that is involved in conflicts where children do die. And, you know, it, it, it kind of transforms the nature of that debate in a way, because then you're faced with the challenge of disentangling standard criticism of Israel and Israeli governments and the Israeli army and the things they do or are accused of doing and what is anti-Semitic. There's two things to say here. Alarm bells always ring when you get the same kind of language and stereotypes and conspiracy theories that anti-Semites have always said about Jews but projected onto Israel or, or Zionists. You know, Zionism was the political movement that campaigned for the creation of the state of Israel. And nowadays... A Zionist is someone who just generally supports Israel's existence and, and, and well-being. But you get lots of conspiracy theories claiming that Zionists or the Zionist lobby control politicians in, in the UK or America or other countries, that they use their money to undermine democracy. It's all the same way of thinking anti-Semites have said about Jews, but just with the word Zionist slipped in instead of Jew. And that's very different from saying... Israel commits human rights abuses on the West Bank, which is a standard political criticism that you can test against the evidence and against the law as you would any other country. So I think that's one thing that's really important to look out for. But the other thing that I find really interesting, even for people who don't use conspiracy theories about Israel, who don't use anti-Semitic language, there is still this phenomenon of Israel triggers a, a level and a type of reaction in people in the West that other foreign conflicts, other overseas conflicts simply don't do. So if Israel is at war, if the Israeli army goes into Gaza, for example, you will get 100,000 people marching through the streets of, of central London. But when Saudi Arabia per prosecutes its war in Yemen using way more British arms than the Israeli army does, you won't get anything like that number. I've got a theory about that, and, and it doesn't rely on anti-Semitism. I, I think it probably has more to do with expectations. I mean, if you, if you, you could say the same thing about the United States. You know, the United States comes under massive criticism for human rights abuses. You know, when it did stuff after Iraq, the torture, the renditions, and all that. Far stronger criticism from Europe, let's say, of the United States than there would be of China or Russia doing the same thing. Uh, and and uh, and people out on the streets, you know, campaigning against the Iraq War, and I, I wonder whether Israel's in the same position as the United States in that respect. People expect better. 
Do you think so? so I think that's a really interesting point, and I think you're right, but it comes with a twist, and I'll explain what that twist is. So to give you an example of what, what you mean, you know, Brian Eno, who's the was in Roxy Music decades ago and very famous musician, he's now chairman of the Stop the War Coalition in the UK. And when Israel was at war in Gaza in 2014, he wrote an article explaining why he singles out Israel for campaigns and boycotts and so on. And what he wrote was, Israel claims to be like us, a Western democracy, whereas Saudi Arabia, he says, what's that got to do with me? I don't even understand it. The interesting thing is, by any kind of measurable standard, by the usual metrics of arms sales or political support or colonial history, Saudi Arabia has at least as much to do with Britain as Israel does. But culturally and in terms of civilizational values, it doesn't. You know, people feel it's not like us, whereas they feel Israel is like us, is part of us, is part of the West. And so we have the right to expect more of it. But the twist is, and this is the really interesting thing is, of course, Israel is Jewish. Israel is the most visible manifestation of, of Jewishness in the world. And Jews have never been uncomplicatedly, unambiguously part of Western civilization, part of European civilization. Jews have always had this kind of weird place in Europe's sense of itself kind of part of Europe, but also not part of Europe, inside societies, but also Europe's other, Europe's scapegoat. This transfers on to Israel, and this is why, I think, so many people in Britain who have no personal connection to Israel or Palestine still feel that that conflict is relevant to them in a way that they, they don't feel other conflicts are. And I don't think we can separate out the way people relate to Israel from the way people and our societies over centuries have related to Jews. I'm not accusing these people of being anti-Semitic. That's not my point, and I don't believe most of them are. But I do believe the fact that Israel is Jewish make, makes it feel more interesting and more relevant. I wonder about that. I'm not sure if I buy the twist. I mean, it seems to me that it, it may be changing now because Israel's changing. But in the first decades of Israel, the predominance of the you know, the European Jews, you know, liberal, maybe Labour Party politicians in Israel were very recognisable to Western liberals. And so there was an identity there, actually. And and, and it's you know, a bit like America, that, that, that there was an identity with America's values on freedom and free speech and tolerance and all that. So I, I wonder if you're, you're right about the twist. And it, it may be we'll find out, right, when if if Israel becomes now, if if what's happening now is a long term trend and it becomes much more religiously uh, minded and the Orthodox community is much stronger there, that 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 might produce different reactions. Do you think? What's interesting about what's going on in Israel at the moment is that you have this government elected, which is is um, you know much more right wing than previous ones, and has certain individuals and minority coalition partners within it who are really very extreme. But then you've had these protests in Israel on the streets for the last three months or so, people from across the political spectrum campaigning for a basic principle of liberal democracy. And this is something quite unusual. I'm trying to think of when you've last had people on this scale, this numbers, and for so long within a democracy campaigning for liberal democracy. And to give you an idea of the scale, 
last week, I think there was one night where there were around 600,000 Israelis out on the streets at midnight on a, on, on a working night. And that would be the equivalent of four and a half million people in Britain. So you have these two trends. You have one moving towards, yes, a more religious and, and a less tolerant type of politics. And the other standing up for liberal democracy. And, and, and I think it's going to be interesting and very important for everyone else, actually, who wins out in that. Absolutely. But I mean, all, all that says is that it's contested. And, and frankly, the direction travels yeah, one way, isn't it? I mean, it has been in the last, what, decade? that the Liberals are on the retreat, the Labour Party's nothing now, that that tradition is less strong than it was. You know. I think it swings both ways, and I think you can't really understand the, the sort of decline in support for the left in Israel without the context of the Second Intifada in, from the year 2000 onwards and the, the suicide bombings uh, that kind of killed off the, the Oslo peace process. You know, I think what we've seen in uh, in Israel this certainly in the last three months is that the the kind of liberal tradition is perhaps more alive and kicking than people gave it credit for. Okay, another tricky area I'd like to get your view on the PR operation of of Israel is, in my experience, I was on the World Service of the BBC for many many years, and uh, I thought they were really really good at it. They they always put up highly articulate spokespeople, and you know more to the point, they always put them up so that whatever was going on, they'd always have a spokesman available who would put the case, the Israeli case. But you know, I I, I think that that verges on the Israel lobby is very strong, and I don't know whether you see that as a slippery slope. I mean, to me, it seems totally legitimate to say that the Israeli government PR operation is is one of the best in the world. But I can see why people might be nervous of saying that, including me. You probably have more experience of comparing different governments' PR operations than I do. It's not something I have personal exposure to, so I wouldn't know if one country's is better than the others. Like you say, and as with everything to do with anti-Semitism, there's, it, if you stick to the facts, you can't really go far wrong. But as soon as you, you get into kind of kind of implications of, of shadowy forces either intimidating people or pulling people's strings that's when you get into dangerous areas so you know yes the israeli government like all other governments will have a pr operation and will try and and persuade journalists to to re reflect their narratives and and what they want reflected in the news and like you say every government does that not just governments i mean organizations companies but when you get talk about you know the british government or the american government is is manipulated into this policy or that policy because the lobby is all powerful and so rich and it has bought off all these politicians that's when you're into an anti-semitic area yeah but you've just stated it very very strongly i mean that's different from saying there is a lobby which yeah there obviously is well, I mean, there, are there are lots of lobbies, aren't there? I mean, uh, but again, I think language is really important. So um, in in Britain, for example, you will have various different organisations who will advocate for different ideas related to Israel. Now, I have to say the organisation I work for, Community Security Trust, doesn't do this. You know, we don't advocate for the Israeli government at all. We just deal with anti-Semitism in Britain. There are other organizations that do. There's Conservative Friends of Israel, Labour Friends of Israel, and Liberal Democrat Friends of Israel, and others as well. Now, these are separate organizations. To put this all into one basket and talk about it as the lobby singular that has its kind of tentacles in different places, 
it may not be intentionally anti-Semitic in itself, it, you know, but it, it leaves the door open for people to think in those terms. And it's always better, I think, to stick to talking in, in very specific practical terms about real existing organizations and people and what the evidence shows they, they do or don't do. Mm. Can, can I just um, ask you, because a lot of people listening to this are, are academics and yeah, there's a very difficult issue of reading lists. I, I've just—I mean, I'm teaching a bit at the moment, and just come across it, where I was going to—I was going to—I um, uh, yeah, I teach a sort of media role of journalism and all that sort of thing course, and I was going to put Scoop as one of the you know, big books, sort of important book in journalism. Yeah, you know, satire, but funny and very readable, and you know something which most journalists have read. And thank goodness I reread it because it, it turns out it just has a you know a couple of passages that clearly you know really anti-Semitic, and I thought, what do I do? Do I put this on the reading list or not? Uh, what would your what would you have done? Anti-Semitism is present in so much of literature and so much great literature. You know, you you talk about Scoop, you can go back to you know, Merchant of Venice and Oliver Twist and the Canterbury Tales, but all the 39 steps. I mean, there are loads of books. If people stop reading these books, you're not exposing people to, you know, the offence of anti-Semitism, but you're also kind of erasing the fact that that anti-Semitism existed. You know, what does it tell us that it was absolutely fine to include anti-Semitism in a book like that? And that would be it would be very successful. And even up until the present day, you know, hasn't been cancelled and no one really talks about it. Like you say, until you checked, it, you weren't aware it was there. My preference is to use these examples as a vehicle for teaching about or, or getting people to think about the anti-Semitism that existed in society at the time these books were written. You know, the first challenge with anti-Semitism, because it's not obvious, is just to get people to notice it. And once people have noticed it, then to start thinking through what that means. And if we hide all these books away, people aren't going to notice it. I sort of agree with that, but I, I'm not sure that many academic disciplinary boards would. I mean, I don't think many people would risk it because they, they'd think, you know, the, the chance that uh, a student will take offence, that they'll be reported for having propagated anti-Semitic material it is one of the grossest insults that you can be, you know, can be made of you. Uh, and, you know, you couldn't really rely on uh, an academic university board who are always terrified of getting bad publicity uh, to, to back you, I think. And you may well be right about that. I mean, in an ideal world, every academic who used books like this would teach them in the right way, would prepare their students for what to expect, would, would, would have a, a framework through which to discuss the anti-Semitic passages or, or, you know, racist passages in other books as part of this learning. Now, that might be an idealised view of how academia works. I don't know, but I can I understand the sensitivities. Uh, I just wanted to ask you one more question about Israel, which I forgot to ask, uh, which, and then I'll just get on to the future and we wrap it up. But it just on Israel, do you think the complaint that some uh, Israeli uh, advocates use the anti-Semitism slur to deter anti-Zionism or, or just complaints about human rights abuses and so on uh, in, in the, let's say, the occupied territories. Do, the, I mean, do you think that happens? This is the idea that 
Israel, the Israeli government or supporters of Israel will make false accusations of anti-Semitism to try and silence their critics. Yeah, sort of conflating Com- criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. Now, now I, the, the truth is both much simpler and also much harder to deal with, which is that when people say something is anti-Semitic, they really believe it is. Even if objectively you're looking at it and thinking there's no way that's anti-Semitic, the person making the allegation really feels it as that. Now, this is partly because for a lot of Jewish people, Israel is very much wrapped up in their their, their Jewish identity and they will have personal connections. They'll have family there, they'll have visited. So when Israel gets criticized or attacked, a lot of Jewish people will feel it as a personal attack on them. And I stress the word feel. And will will and and that will then come out as an I you know the allegation this is anti-Semitic. I you know I've worked in the field of of, of tackling anti-Semitism for decades, and I've never once come across anyone saying we know this isn't anti-Semitic, but we're going to call it that anyway. And actually, the truth that, that when people make this allegation, they really believe it, is in some ways harder to deal with. Now, what you get in parallel is this allegation that um, that is anti- actually an anti-Semitic allegation in itself, that Jews make up false, false accusations of anti-Semitism to try to silence critics of Israel, that when they say something is anti-Semitic, they're not just wrong, they are deliberately lying, and that is another form of conspiracy theory. Well, it's a pretty, it would be a pretty obvious tactic, though, for a, a, a PR you know, spin doctor to use, wouldn't it? It's the sort of thing all spin doctors do the whole time. Yeah, I mean, well, I work for an organisation that tackles anti-Semitism and that speaks out against examples of anti-Semitism all the time. We would never, ever make a spurious or or, or uh, kind of light-hearted allegation. It is a very serious allegation to make. But I think if people want to really take on this issue seriously, the starting point should be when Israel or supporters of Israel or Jewish people say that they believe something to be anti-Semitic, they really do believe it. And if you disagree with them on on objective analytical grounds, fine, and try and have that conversation. But those allegations, in my experience, having worked in this field for a long time, time, are usually made in good faith, even if, you know, there are plenty of times I've looked at things like this and thought that's just wrong. That's not anti-Semitic. The future, what, what I mean, I guess is, you know, you must have fears for the future, given the current direction of travel. What, what's What's your assessment of where we're headed? You know, people sometimes ask me, is the glass half full or half empty? And I normally say there's two glasses and one is one is filling up and the other is emptying. On the one hand, the things we talked about, about uh, the increased popularity of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about amongst younger people, the increased involvement of younger people in far-right extremism is really worrying. On the other hand, more and more people, I think, are alive to what anti-Semitism is and to the fact that it is dangerous and it is important and that we need to do something about it. I feel like Jewish communities have many more friends and allies than we used to have even a decade ago. Now, this itself is a reflection of the fact that anti-Semitism is more, more mainstream and you can't ignore it. But, I, you know, that gives me hope for the future. And I always come back to this. The vast majority of people are not only not anti-Semitic, they are absolutely appalled by anti-Semitism if they're forced to think about it and to notice it. And the challenge for us is to get more people to think about it and to step up and do something about it because most people are decent people and want to think of themselves as decent people and find all of this completely appalling. 
Dave Rich, thank you very much indeed for giving us so much of your time and talking us through these quite tricky issues. Thank you.